Well, this is the second week of Advent, and our theme is peace. You might have noticed there are two candles lit this morning. First one represents hope. We talked about hope last week. And then the second candle this morning represents peace. Let's talk about that idea for a few minutes. So there are two words in the Bible that we translate to peace. The, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament is the word shalom. And then the Greek word in the New Testament is the word erene. And they both are just packed full of meaning. I'm going to talk mostly about that word shalom today. The word peace in English just doesn't do it justice. Especially if you mean this, peace, you know, definitely doesn't do it justice. And depending on how much meaning in English, the context in which the way you were, use the word peace, and it depend, depending on the context and, and how much meaning is packed into it because of that context, like if you were talking about peace between communities or peace within a family or peace within an individual or world peace, then maybe you're getting closer to the biblical idea of peace at that point, though I would still say the word shalom is even a little more packed. Here's what I mean. It's totally appropriate to translate shalom into English in these ways. Whole, something being made whole, finished, full, to make something good that once was bad. Welfare, seeking the welfare of someone. I'll give you a scripture from Jeremiah here in a bit that speaks of seeking the welfare of the city. The word is shalom, seeking the shalom of the city. To make something well, to make something perfect, and indeed to be at peace. Well, some great thinkers, of which I am not, but some great thinkers have taken a stab at this, and so let me throw out lifelines to them. Pastor Tim Keller has said that shalom, peace, means total flourishing in absolutely every dimension Physically, relationally, socially, spiritually. Bible scholar Nathan Stone said shalom expressed the deepest desire and need of the human heart. It represents being content and satisfied in life. Theologian Perry Yoder said shalom is a combination of righteousness and justice, making things the way they should be in people, between people, and for people. What am I personal favorite thinkers, Christian philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff wrote, Shalom is the human being dwelling at peace in all his or her relationships with God, with self, with fellows, and with nature. Well, let me take you to the scriptures, because all these individuals are doing are looking at God's word and trying to bring it down, systematize it, and to define this concept of shalom. So let's go directly to the word of God itself. Shalom was what Adam and Eve knew in the garden originally. Shalom with each other and shalom with God. But then, as you know this story, when we make it to Genesis chapter 3, something happens. We learn that sin enters into the world and in an instant, shalom is destroyed. Do you ever get frustrated with Adam and Eve like I do? You had one rule. 
don't eat fruit from one tree. The rest of the garden was theirs. Just stay away from this one tree. And we don't know how much time elapsed. Uh, you know, the, the way it reads in Scripture, you might, be tend to think, you might tend to think that God gave them that command. We call it the Adamic covenant, the covenant with Adam. God gave them the command, and then instantaneously they go to the tree. Well, maybe not. Maybe years went by. Maybe decades went by. Maybe centuries went by before they were talked into this great sin by the serpent. But in that moment, shalom vanishes. I want you to think with me for a minute about that initial confrontation between God and Adam and Eve after they sin. When God first confronts Adam and Eve about their sin, and who does Adam blame? (laughs) Right out of the gate, right? Can I quote the verse to you, Genesis 3.12? Or I'll read it to you. It's in front of me, so I won't try to quote it. Adam says, the woman you put here with me She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Now, how many of you know Shalom is gone at that point? (laughs) I mean, if there was anything left, it has just left the building. There is no peace now. What's Adam saying? Adam's saying, God, this is all her fault. She made this mess. Adam destroys any Shalom he had left with Eve at that point. But don't miss this. Who else does Adam blame for the sin? Can I read the verse to you again? And I'll put the emphasis on a different word. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. What's Adam also saying? God, this is your fault. (laughs) Hey, I don't know why you're looking at me, God. This isn't my responsibility, it's her fault. And now that I think about it, God, it's your fault. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Adam blames Eve. Adam blames God. And with that, shalom evaporates. And things just get worse from there. How many of you have read the Bible? Cain and Abel, Sodom and Gomorrah. Just think through all of those great Old Testament Bible stories you've learned in Sunday school through the years. Shalom dissipates. Shalom is gone. But we shouldn't be discouraged. Why shouldn't we be discouraged this morning, church? Because there's good news, isn't there? How many of you know the good news? (laughs) All throughout the Bible, after our fall into sin, we see that God desires his people to live in shalom. God is not content with us living. Please hear this. God is not content with you and I living in the chaos and the wreckage and the dysfunction of our sin. It's not what he wants. It wasn't his plan for our lives, and it never was. And and we see this in Scripture throughout the Bible. And and so as I'm prone to do, I'm going to walk you through the whole Bible right now on this topic. 
But he wants people to know peace, and he always has. Isaiah 48, verse 18. Sorry, I'm running a little behind here. There we go. Isaiah 48, 18. If only you had paid attention to my commandments. And then God says, then your well-being, your peace, the Hebrew word written here in the text, shalom. If you had just paid attention to my commandments, then your shalom would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Psalm 29, verse 11 says, The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with shalom, with well-being, with goodness, with wholeness, with perfection, with peace. This truth is even more fully developed in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have this Greek word that's translated peace, erinae. And many times in the New Testament, this word is used to describe a state of concord, a state of peace, a state of harmony. And sometimes some, some of the contexts in the New Testament, it's in the, in the cases of governments. Sometimes it's in reference to the church and what's happening in the body. Sometimes it's in the context of personal relationships. And other times it references a state of well-being within the individual heart. God wants us to know peace, church. God desires us to live in shalom and arene because God is a God of peace. Jehovah is addressed that way. He's addressed as the God of peace. And Jesus himself is shalom. He is arene. He's called the prince of peace in scripture, isn't he? I mean, this is how Isaiah prophesied about him. Isaiah 9, 6 And his name, speaking of Christ, the coming Messiah, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. You see, Advent is a message of peace. It's certainly a message of hope, but it's also a message of peace. Peace with God, peace with each other, Peace within ourselves. How many of you know that last one can sometimes be the slipperiest, the most tricky, to be at peace in your own heart? Advent is a message of peace. The incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ is a message of peace because Jesus came to bring us peace. The priest, Zechariah. Let me walk you through some more of the New Testament here. The priest, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he prophesied about Jesus. And he said this in Luke chapter 1, Shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And don't forget the, the message that the angels declared. We've all seen this in multiple Christmas pageants through the years concerning the birth of Jesus in this great scene where the angels show up and totally freak out a bunch of unsuspecting shepherds, right, in Luke 2.14, and they declare glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Jesus brought peace. He brought wholeness to many during his ministry. When he healed a woman physically, 
He said to her, we looked at this passage weeks ago, Mark chapter 5, he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Go in Aaronay. Go in shalom. Go in wholeness and be freed from your suffering. I don't think we should miss in this context, and I'm sure we made much of this when we looked at Mark 5, but we shouldn't miss that he was caring for a very practical need in this lady's life as he was also bringing healing to her soul and making peace in her life. There's another time when a sinful woman anointed his feet with perfume. Remember this story? In her own tears, she washed the feet of Christ. And Jesus said these words to her. He said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and the crowds shouted this towards the end of his ministry, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory on the highest. But upon entering Jerusalem, Jesus wept. And said this, if you, even you, the people of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, what would bring you shalom, what would bring you irony, what would bring you wholeness in life, if you only knew what was good for you, if you only knew what would bring a state of welfare and wellness into your life, Christ is saying here, but now it's hidden from your eyes, he says. What did he say to his disciples before the cross? He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And church, this really kind of drives us to a point that we need to understand this morning. Throughout his ministry, Jesus created peace. And so Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, will say of Jesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, he came and preached peace. Speaking of Jesus Christ, his message was one of peace. It was the gospel. We know this. If you've been with us the last few months, you know what we're talking about here because Christ's message was the gospel. It was the message of the kingdom, the coming king, and how everything would be made new. And this is a message of peace. Peace. And so Paul rightly writes, he came and preached peace to you and you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Because the gospel itself is a message of peace. And Jesus died for us to live in peace. Through, through him, we can now know peace. Amen? We can now experience this with God. Christ in you brings peace. And conversely, there's no hope for peace outside of Jesus. To try to attain peace in your life without Christ at the center of who you are is a fool's errand. The only hope for peace in this life is to know Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this to the Romans and says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that right there in that one verse, there's the means in which it happens, there's the way it happens, and then there's the outcome. I love that. It's all 
so Paul was Holy Spirit through Paul, just so brilliant, right? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we are justified, we are set free from our sin, we are forgiven of all of the consequences of our sin, church, because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And now, now, because of that, the outcome of that is we have peace with God. How powerful. Paul writes to the Colossians, and he talks about Christ being reconciled and, and how Christ reconciled all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Friend, if, if you've heard nothing else this morning, please just walk away with this today. This is the only thing you walk away with. Walk away with this. It is the blood of Jesus that fixes what is broken between me and God. I don't, I don't know, if, well, I'm going to say it in a more stronger way. I, don't, I know there's no other way to get there than by the blood of Christ. This is the saddest, one of the saddest things to me about what we were talking about last week with religion. People will spend their whole lives trying to achieve something, and they skip step one. They want to do better. They want to be a better person. They want to be a better husband or a better wife. They want to be a better parent. They want to be a better citizen. They want to be a better employee. They want to do better running their own business. They want to be better. But they skip the first step. And you can't. It's only the blood of Christ that will set you free. And then God can do something beautiful in your life. But it alone can make right what has gone wrong. And, and now having peace with God, step one, we are instructed to walk in peace. Now we can get to work. Jesus did it all on the cross. He did everything necessary for our salvation. We just need to receive it and put our hope and trust in him alone for our salvation, believing that he has the power to save and that he will save us. That's step one. But then it's time to get to work because after Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that we're saved by grace through faith, not of your works, so that none of us should boast, comes verse 10, which for some reason sometimes people don't quote that one, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so after our salvation, it's now necessary for us to walk in peace with Jesus. Peter writes that we should make every effort, we ought to make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Peter says make every effort. I'm certainly not passive in that. This is something I need to do. That's an imperative. You ought to make every effort. To walk in peace, I think Peter's trying to say or is saying they're found spotless to be blameless and to be at peace with God, with Christ. And we ought to walk in peace with each other. Again, this is something we have to do. This takes effort on our part. 
How many of you know, especially in the day that we're living in today, it takes effort to live at peace with people? (laughs) Am I the only one who's sometimes overwhelmed by the hostility in the world today? So much hostility, so much division. Sometimes even within our own families. Paul writes to the Ephesians and says to them, to Christians who are trying to follow Christ, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy. Don't miss that. I want you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul's saying, look, you've been saved by the blood. Your foundation is the gospel. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. Now listen, I want you now to live a life worthy of that calling. You've been called, you're saved, and now you're being sanctified. And he says to them, this is what it looks like. Verse 2, be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Sadly, I feel like in the Christian community today, these are not the virtues that are being touted of what it means to follow Christ. Paul says to them, you want to live out your calling? Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. And bear with each other in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So we are to live at peace brothers and sisters, with each other. Other believers, we are to live at peace with each other. It's what very clearly Paul's saying here to the Ephesians. But we also are to live at peace with unbelievers. The author of Hebrews addresses this, says, make every effort to live in peace with who? Say it for me. All. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And you may say, yeah, but the author of Hebrews wasn't going through what we're going through in our country today. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a whole lot worse. Occupied by the Roman Empire. This, I mean, the gladiator games had probably already started up. Christian families being drugged into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions, to be slain by gladiators. Persecution was real in the Roman Empire. I don't think we should whine and complain about stuff going on in our country. And and this is what the author of Hebrews says. Make every effort to live in peace with all men. You want to follow Christ. You want to live out your calling. You want to be someone who's walking in the footsteps of Jesus. You need to live at peace. You need to be gentle. You need to be patient. Romans 14, 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Colossians 3, 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. All right, I got to bring this home. So, Jesus came to, that was for me, not for you. I've got to bring this home. So Jesus came to bring us peace. He died for us to live in peace. He instructed us to walk in peace. And here's the last point. If you're tracking on the note sheet, and by the way, all those scriptures are there if you want to look back at them. He expects his followers 
to be like him and to create peace. And this is so important for how we ought to live our lives, brothers and sisters. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the creators of shalom. Blessed are you when you do this work yourself. And so how can we do this? How can we be peacemakers? How can we be people who create shalom in our communities? How can we be people who create shalom at our places of employment? How can we be people who create shalom in our country and in our culture and in society? Well, I'm going to go back to the first principle, and it's this. Ultimately, shalom, true peace, is only found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's it. That's foundational. You cannot skip that step. Ultimately, the only way to create shalom in the world is through the spread of the gospel. Am I all alone this morning? Everybody just fall asleep on me 30 seconds ago? Okay, let me say that again. Ultimately, the only way to really create shalom in the world is through the spread of the gospel. Thank you. All right. That sounds more like a church who believes that. That's the way we create shalom, through sharing our faith. I love, I won't say who it was, but I had a conversation right before the service, a good friend of mine who goes here, and, and, and he's talking about the opportunity that he has through the building of relationships to be salt and light, to share the gospel. It's what we need to be looking for. Maybe we don't need to be doing this on Saturday mornings anymore. If uh, you died today and you stood before God, why should he let you into heaven? Now, I'm certainly not saying that God never used that. I think he did, and there are people who would give testimony to that and say that that's how they came to Christ or at a large crusade, right? So if God has called you, right, to do things like that, that is, that's great. It's between you and the Lord and the direction of the Holy Spirit in your life. But what I am saying is this, and I hope everyone has their ears opened right now, every single person in this room can share the gospel with people that they have developed a foundation of relationship with, right? Uh, family members, friends, co-workers. And so if we want to do what Jesus said we ought to do to be blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the creators of shalom, then my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, would be that we use those relationships that God has given us of of family, grandchildren, children, nephews, nieces, friends, neighbors, co-workers, that we ought to begin to think in terms of using those relationships in order to share our faith. And if you're not doing that, I I just want to ask a very simple question. Why? Why would you not be a part or consider yourself to be a part of this great commission that Jesus Christ has given to us? All of us. Not just me, not just Pastor Ken, not just the elders here, but all of us have that responsibility as Christ followers and that joy Because listen, if God has never yet used you in the process of someone being rebirthed in Jesus Christ, you have no idea what you're missing. 
Amen? I mean, if you've never been there when someone when someone's heart breaks open and it, and it literally goes from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and they come to Christ for the first time, it's amazing. It's Mana here. Mana's here. Mana shares her faith all the time. And I'm not saying this to give her a big head, but I just want to tell you about one quick thing real quick. Years ago, decades ago, I don't know, Mana, was it centuries ago? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> decades ago, she knows I love her. Decades ago, Mana shared her faith with a couple who were her neighbors. They get saved, and within a few years or so, I don't know how many years it was, they're off to Africa on the mission field for the next two or three decades, about 20 years. I pray with this gentleman every Thursday morning now. He spent, he and his wife spent 20 some years training pastors in Africa to go out to church plant. I don't even want to begin to do the math to calculate how much influence for the kingdom that has created because one lady in East China, Michigan, said the gospel is too important, it's too essential to my life, Jesus is so valuable that I'm actually willing to speak it to a couple of friends of mine. <laughs> Amen? What are we waiting for, church? This is the message that brings peace. And so if we want to be creators of shalom in our culture, let's sell out our lives to it and be quick to speak of it, to speak the gospel and to always accompany that by living the gospel. Because there's a word for those who speak it and don't live it. We call them hypocrites. And let us never be guilty of that. So let's speak the gospel. Let's live the gospel one life at a time, sharing the message of the gospel and exposing people to the radical love of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. Blessed are you when you create wholeness in someone's life, when you put back together that which was broken. I love this passage. I want to be very clear as a Bible teacher. I want to make sure I say this. This was God's message to the nation of Israel while they were in captivity. And we need to understand it in, their, in that context. We need to understand this is what God said to a specific group of people at a specific time in their history in a specific setting. Now, having said that, I think there are principles that certainly apply to what we're talking about this morning. Look at this passage, Jeremiah chapter 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Why is God saying this to the Israelites? Because some of them were sitting around on their bottoms waiting for the opportunity to go back to Israel. God, please restore us. Take us out of Babylon and bring us back to Jerusalem. Bring us back to the nation of Israel. And they weren't doing anything. They weren't involved in their communities. They were captives in a foreign country, and they weren't doing anything of value. They were just sitting and waiting for their release from all of that. 
Sadly, church, I think this is how a lot of Christians spend their lives. They're just sitting around waiting for Christ to come back. They know they have their fire insurance. They're good. I know I'm going to be caught up. I'm going to go with them. I'm just waiting. I'm going to watch the sky. Here he comes. And then I'm sorry, but ridiculous books like Four Blood Boons and all these other prophetic books that come out that distract people from the mission that our captain and our king has given to us. And what is that mission? To proclaim the gospel. To love people into the kingdom. And I think, so here in this passage, let me finish it for you because it gets really good. Verse 7, God says to Israel, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now again, very clearly, God to Israel in Babylonian captivity, and there's certainly things tied up in here uh, about the, the, you know, about it doing well and the prosperity of the city and all of that. But again, as people who know that only true shalom and true Aaronay come from a heart that has embraced the gospel and a person who has Christ in them. We know this because we're on the other side of the cross of Christ. And because of that, we know that we have a message to proclaim to bring people peace. Amen, church? Our job is to have a faithful presence in our cities, our towns, our countryside, our places of employment, our homes. We have incredible opportunity to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ, to reveal his glory. Church, there's no question. There's no question here in Scripture. Scripture is so clear. Now that we have peace with God through Jesus, we are called to walk in peace and we are called to be peacemakers. It's not what saves us. Let's never get this confused. Let's never pervert the gospel by thinking that somehow we can earn it. It's not what we're say it's not what saves us, but it indeed is, as Martin Luther said, what we are saved for. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Good works are what identifies those of us who are truly following Christ. Martin Luther said it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. We are saved by faith alone, faith in Christ and what he did for us on the cross, church, but not by a faith that remains alone. Now it's time to get to work. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ to save you, it's time to get into the battle, isn't it? For some of you, I really hope, I really hope, I'm praying I am praying for you right now. I've been praying for you this week that you would realize the Holy Spirit is telling some of you it is time. It is time. It's time to sit on the sidelines is over. It's time to engage. It's, in, it's time to engage my community. It's time to engage my neighborhood. It's time to engage the people in my workplace. To be salt and light. To love them. To pray for them. And then to share with them. You have the foundation of relationship now. Now it's time to use those relationships for the kingdom so that people will come into the kingdom and give all praise and honor to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up.
I think it begins with this. I'm just going to ask you a few questions as they come and get ready to lead us in a song. But I think it, it starts with my asking myself some really tough questions. And first of all, I have to start with this question. Do I truly see the value of every person? I, I mean, I think, I think I'm preaching to the choir. Maybe not, but I believe I'm preaching to the choir when I make very pro-life statements in this church. You know, I mean, I've never hidden this. I am 100% against abortion in any circumstances. And, and I believe that our country 50 years ago, 48 years ago, took us down an incredibly dark path in making abortion legal that now we've devalued life in so many other ways. And it's heartbreaking to me. It is absolutely heartbreaking so as people, and, and if you would agree with me, and if you would say the same thing, if you would say, yes, I am 100% pro-life, then, then let me ask you this question. Do you then see the value of every person? I mean, to me, those two go, those two go hand in hand, right? I mean, the reason I'm pro-life is because of two things, really. First of all, I believe that every single person is made in the image of God. I believe that every person has, in Latin, it's called the Imago Dei, that God put his imprint into every life. And so to destroy that, to destroy that's an abomination. The other reason that I'm pro-life is because Jesus loved the world so much that he went to the cross for them. Every person is so loved by Christ that he went and died on the cross. To, to me, that's plenty of evidence. It's all I need. There are other reasons too, but that's, that's enough. To know that every person who has ever been conceived is made in the image of God and was loved so much by Christ that he died for them on the cross is enough for me to see their value. That's question one. Do you see the value of every person? I think the next question is, are you willing to make it a focus of your life to look for, to create, and to be a part of what God wants to do in the lives of people to bring wholeness to them, to create peace within them, to bring shalom to them, shalom within themselves, shalom with God, and shalom with others. In the quietness of your heart right now, would you be willing to just ask yourself this question? Am I willing to make myself, I'm going to choose this word, vulnerable? Am I willing to make myself vulnerable to other people? To take that posture that Jesus took. How did Paul describe it in the verse we looked at? Humble, gentle, patient, long-suffering, Am I willing 
to make myself vulnerable with other people, taking the posture that the Lord took as a servant who loved people sacrificially. Would I be willing to do that in a relationship so that God might use me for someone else to know true shalom? Friend, if you're saying yes to that question and you're opening yourself up and making yourself available to God right now, be ready. Be ready for him to give you opportunities to be true peacemakers, to be creators of shalom. This is the abundant life, brothers and sisters, that Christ has called us into. It's not just a life where we pray a prayer so that we get to go to heaven. It's a life where we trust in him for our salvation, but then we also follow him as our Lord. And we live our lives as he would have us to live so that he can then use us to reach others.